Welcome to Abide in Liberty, a podcast empowering patriots everywhere to re-enthrone faith, family, and freedom as the bedrock pillars of liberty in education, our communities, and our nation. Hello, everyone. Welcome back for another episode of Abide in Liberty. This is part two of my series on the miracles of the revolution. So just to recap from last week, um, we're going to spend the next, I don't know how many weeks this is going to take, going through several of my favorite miracles from the American Revolution. These are all stories that I had learned about previously, but it wasn't until um, reading a book called The Washington Hypothesis recently where um, the author typically what you see in um, a history of the American Revolution is great attention to detail at every stage. And in particular, these miraculous events are talked about, but tend to either be downplayed or there's so much detail in between each of these miraculous events that the frequency of them and just how many there are tends to get diluted because by the time you get to the next one, it seems like there's so much that's happened and there's so much that did happen. This book, though, I really appreciated because it covered the same historical facts. It did it from a perspective of faith, however, whereas many of the books and things I've studied on the American Revolution do come from, especially the history books, tend to do come from a little bit more of a secular viewpoint. But in this book, it kind of takes the opposite approach. Rather than kind of brushing through the miraculous events a little bit more quickly, and then spending a lot of time on the detail in between them. This one focuses and highlights those miraculous events and then very uh, summarizes in a very general way the events that lead from one miraculous event to the other. So I've really enjoyed this. And just as a reminder, what we talked about last week was uh, kind of a precursor to the American Revolution, an event that happened in George Washington's life during his time in the French and Indian War, where he had been miraculously preserved. And as the Grand Sachem, or the chief of the Indian tribe that he ran into, predicted, this miraculous preservation resulted in Washington being alive and being in a position to play his vital role during the American Revolution. So let's pick up where we left off with the French and Indian War. This war finally ended in 1763, so about 13 years before the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Washington went back to Mount Vernon and worked on various projects there and uh, around his state. But the French and Indian War really launched him into the public eye. And he was very popular after the French and Indian War. But over the course of the next 12 to 13 years, a lot changed very quickly. England had incurred a great deal of debt during the French and Indian War. And the way they saw it was, we spent all this money to protect the American colonies from the invading French and Indians, the Native Americans. And so they should help us foot the bill for this war. So they began taxing the colonies, and they did it quite a bit. Now, by those standards, it was a heavy tax, especially compared to what the colonies had enjoyed prior to this time. For families this day and age, the tax amounts would almost seem laughably low, but this was a big deal to them. And despite the fact 
that a lot of these taxes were relatively low, it was the principle of the thing that bothered them. Under English law, and as English citizens, they were entitled to certain rights. And one of those was the right to not be taxed without representation. You know, we hear that a lot, no taxation without representation. Well, where did they get such an idea? Well, they got it from English common law. This was the way it was run, and these were things you were entitled to as English citizens. So what they were upset by was they were being treated like second-rate citizens, and they saw themselves as good British citizens. And so when they were treated as less than that, it really rubbed them the wrong way. Now, the seedbed of this bad feeling and where it all kind of came to a head was in Boston, Massachusetts. And it happened early on. So just five years after the French and Indian War, things had gotten so dicey in Boston that the Crown felt like it needed to send troops to Boston to help calm things down and restore peace and order and prevent revolutionary action. Now, that didn't help tensions. And two short years later, there was an event known as the Boston Massacre, where um, British troops opened fire on a crowd of antagonistic Bostonians. And uh, this was kind of a famous case where John Adams, who lived in Boston at the time, had the very unpopular job of defending these British soldiers. He believed in the rule of law and that justice should be blind and that even though the British occupancy of Boston was not popular, those who had felt threatened by the antagonistic Bostonian mob were entitled to equal protection under the law. He defended them, and both he and historians now with 2020 vision have agreed that really the, the, uh, the British were probably justified in defending themselves in this case. Now, the Boston citizens didn't see it that way, and this only exacerbated the high tensions and the unkind feelings between the two sides. Um, over the course of the next few years, an additional taxation led to, in December of 1773, the Boston Tea Party. This is another popular story from American history where um, the Sons of Liberty and um, those who were not so happy about being forced to purchase British tea with the additional taxes on it, uh, snuck aboard, disguised as Native Americans, and dumped all the tea sitting on the ship into the harbor, ruining it completely and making very clear to the British how unhappy they were with this arrangement and with what the Crown was trying to impose upon them. Just over a year later, in March of 1775, we get Patrick Henry giving his fiery give me liberty or give me death speech. And then just a month later, fearing that the Massachusetts colony and, and the Bostonians in particular were getting ready to rise up in rebellion, the British decided to strike out into the countryside and seize arms and ammunition that were being held in little towns known as Lexington and Concord. And this is where, in this battle, the battles of Lexington and Concord is where the first shots of the American Revolution were fired in what was immortalized as the shot that was heard around the world. This, this opening salvo of the American Revolution would have far-reaching consequences that would be felt and heard the world over. 
This is also the story where we get, you know, the signal to Paul Revere was if they were coming by land, there would be one lantern in the church steeple. And if they were going to come by sea, there would be two lanterns. Well, the British chose the sea. So two lanterns were lit. Paul Revere sees that message and is on his horse, uh, raising the alarm throughout the countryside that the British were coming. And come they did. Technically, I believe historians classify the Battle of Lexington and Concord as a draw because the British didn't succeed in capturing those arms and the Americans didn't really succeed in in doing too much damage to the British army, neither gained any ground or lost any ground in this battle. But by striking out into the countryside, the British found themselves in a little bit of a hornet's nest and they were harried during the entire retreat back that entire day, they were um, beset by militiamen firing on them from cover from the edges of the roads and from um, forests that lined the roads. So they were constantly under fire all the way back. And um, unfortunately, the militiamen were not terribly accurate. The British casualties were not nearly as high as they probably should have been had the militiamen been trained regular soldiers. But in either case, they drove them out, and this really, for the first time, brought into the mainstream the idea that America might actually be able to win in an all-out confrontation with Great Britain. They had stood up against British regulars and weren't completely clobbered. In fact, the British casualties were quite a bit higher than the American casualties. So this kind of galvanized the revolutionary spirit throughout the country, which eventually culminated in the Declaration of Independence. But there was more that needed to happen. This was a good first step, but it wasn't quite enough. So when the British retreated, they pulled back into Boston. Remember, they had been occupying Boston now for, what, like seven years? So this had been something that this was a part of life that if you lived in Boston, just having the Redcoats you know, in your home or as your neighbor or or crossing paths with them as you walk down the street. This was just the way that it was. So the British pull back into Boston, they fortify, and the Americans start camping around Boston. And they laid siege to Boston. And this siege would end up lasting about 11 months. The colonists set up camp and set up their defenses across the river from Boston. And initially, set up on um, a couple of hills that were just on the other side of the river called Bunker Hill and Breed's Hill. Now, the British understood the military significance of these hills as it gave the Americans the high ground. And if the Americans had cannon, which they had very few of at the time, would have allowed them easy access to bombard the city during the siege. So the British immediately set out to attack and claim these hills, which they succeeded in doing, giving themselves the high ground. So the British now had the high ground and pushing the Americans back far enough that they couldn't directly attack or inflict any damage on Boston or the British that were entrenched there. Now, during all of this time and up to this point, George Washington was not in the picture yet. This all happened, remember, in April of 1775, and he wasn't appointed as the leader of the armies until July of 1775. And I did want to read, when he was given this task by Congress, by the Continental Congress, now this was before, again, this is still before the Declaration of Independence. This is kind of a 
um, a position where, again, many of those in Congress were beginning to think, especially after the success at Lexington and Concord, that declaring independence was an achievable goal, that this was a confrontation that perhaps they could win, but many were still hopeful that there could be some sort of a peaceful uh, resolution to the hostilities. And so during this time, there were still petitions to King George III going on, all of which were rejected. And the idea of Congress was, look, we we can't let the British gain more ground if we do end up declaring our independence. But at the same time, as British citizens, we are defending ourselves against tyrannical behavior that as British citizens, we should not be subject to. So we're going to we're going to stand up for ourselves while we try and repair uh, and mend ties with our mother country, with Great Britain. So Washington was sent to help command the armies. He was seen as kind of a savior figure because of what he had accomplished during the French and Indian War, but he did not feel up to the task. And when asked to fulfill this role, his response to Congress, again, just showed the greatness of his heart and his humility. He said, I am truly sensible of the high honor done to me in this appointment, yet I feel great distress from a consciousness that my abilities and military experience may not be equal to the extensive and important trust. I beg it may be remembered by every gentleman in the room that I this day declare with utmost sincerity, I do not think myself equal to the command I am honored with. I've I've felt this way before when I've been asked to do something that I think is above me. I'll say, look, I'll try, but I want you to know, I, remember, I warned you ahead of time that I'm probably not going to be very good at this, but I'll, I'll do my best. And that was kind of his response. So he showed up in July of 1775 and began the difficult job of whipping the army into shape. It was, it was in rough shape at this point, and he succeeded for the most part in doing that. But remember, this is still an entire year before we would even declare officially declare our independence. Now, when he arrived, we'd already lost Breeds and Bunker Hill. We lost the high ground. And he immediately, upon looking at the lay of the land, realized that success was only to be found in ending this siege if the Americans could somehow seize an area, a a piece of high ground south of Boston and south of the harbor known as Dorchester Heights. This would give the Americans access to, to, to bombard Boston with cannon if they had cannon. And it, it was ideally situated to allow Americans to actually be able to reach these, these British fortifications. There were two problems, though. The Americans did not have the cannon that they needed to be successful, even if they were able to take Dorchester Heights. And the second problem was the British realized the significance of that spot and were ideally positioned that if the Americans were to try and scale this steep incline with this heavy artillery, the British could easily cross the river and attack and annihilate the Americans while they're toiling uphill. It was just not a great, <laughs> not a great situation, but it was really the only option. So the solution to step one came in the form of a very large gentleman named Henry Knox. He asked permission to go travel hundreds of miles to the abandoned Fort Ticonderoga, a, a fort that the British had abandoned some time before, and bring back all of the cannon and ordnance that had been left there. So he got permission. Washington gave him permission to try this. 
he got there with his team and they retrieved 120,000 pounds of mortar and cannons. This was a huge haul. But the problem was how to get back with all of this. They had arrived there through thick forest undergrowth and um, it was not an easy trek just to get there. And getting back with all of that heavy equipment was going to be, it seemed nearly impossible. But they did their best and they relied on the Lord to do their rest. So they set about preparing sleds to transport these. And on Christmas Day, 1775, once the sleds were completed and they had waited for a little bit, an enormous blizzard blew through and it was so cold and there was so much snow that it paved a snowy path to allow them to get back to Boston. And it also froze the Hudson River, which made the river crossings possible with all of that heavy weight. So they make it back. They make it back to Boston with all this cannon. A little bit of time passes. It's now March and things are beginning to thaw. We're having some warm days mixed in with some cold days. They had the cannon, but there was still no way to get all of these soldiers and and the cannon up onto Dorchester Heights without the British noticing and without taking so long that the British would have time to see what they were doing, cross over, take them out, and protect the high ground. But they really had no other choice. So putting their trust in God, and they did do that, putting their trust in God, they began barraging uh, Boston with what they had from their entrenched fortifications And at midnight, on a night in March, they began trying to sneak their way up Dorchester, up to Dorchester Heights. And just at the perfect moment, almost like that wonderful Christmas Day snowstorm that allowed them to get the cannon in the first place, a mist rolled in that completely concealed the American activity and allowed them to spend much of the night moving the cannon up the hill unbeknownst to the British. Did they know that that was going to happen before they set out? No, but they set out, they put their trust in God, and God provided the miracle. The result was the next morning, the British woke up, and there were the Americans with their cannons pointed down at them. And General Howe, who commanded the British army, exclaimed, these fellows have done more work in one night than I could make my army do in three nights. He was completely flabbergasted that this had all happened under the cover of night in such a short amount of time. But now America has a little bit of high ground. Now the British still had breeds in Bunker Hill. And so knowing that this couldn't be allowed to stand, Howe immediately ordered his men to cross the river and to take the heights. They could not let the Americans hold that place. And based on how this had gone before with Breeds and Bunker Hill, it was pretty much an assured thing that the British would be able to take Dorchester Heights back and remove this advantage from the Continental Army. Well, as soon as Howe ordered this attack across the river to happen, what began as a relatively warm day for March turned in suddenly to a raging winter storm that blew the British ships back onto shore, smashing and destroying two of the British transport ships. Also at this same time, smallpox had broken out in Boston and hit the British regulars especially hard. So with all of these things combining against them, the Americans now have the high ground. They've got all of this cannon. 
the weather itself seems to be working against them. And there's a, there's a disease running rampant throughout the city. The British decide, look, not, not only is all of this happening, but we've spent the last seven years in this city that is completely hostile to us. There are very few loyal to the British crown anymore. Let's let's give up Boston as a loss. It's being taken over by smallpox anyways. So the British got up and left. The siege ended and Boston came back under American control. Now we'll pick up where this story leaves off next week, but a couple things that I want to point out. The British in this case had every advantage. They had the high ground. George Washington knew that they were so firmly entrenched in Boston that a direct assault would have been folly. The best they could do was try to shell them from afar from a point of high ground, which they didn't have. They lost that early on. The English not only had an almost impregnable defensive position, but they had well-trained soldiers, the best trained soldiers in the world. They had ample supplies and a direct supply line from England through the harbor and through the British Navy. The Americans, on the other hand, had every disadvantage. They were losing people and soldiers by the droves. They had limited equipment. They had lost the high ground, and their soldiers were untrained and ill-equipped. I'm reminded of a story in the Bible where an army comes out to take the prophet, and as the prophet and his servant are standing on the city wall looking out at this host that's come to take them, uh, the servant gets nervous and says, look, how, how are we going to get out of this? We're, we're in deep trouble here. And the prophet replied to him and said, those that be with them are more than those that be with us. And then the veil was lifted from the servant's eyes and he was able to see what the prophet was able to see. And there was a host of angels there to help fight this battle and protect the prophet in the city that was sheltering him. I wonder... And I look forward to going back and watching this particular episode in heaven someday. If the veil were peeled back, what would we see? We have three perfectly timed weather events and a disease that all work together to bring about this great victory. But now what did Washington do? He did pay constant attention to make sure that there was righteousness among his army. And he faithfully did his part. He he authorized this insane expedition to Fort Ticonderoga and this, this suicidal attempt to try and take Dorchester Heights. Neither of these things on their own would have been enough. Even if Henry Knox had succeeded in getting the cannon and George Washington on his own had been able to take Dorchester Heights, the British army was so well-equipped, they should have easily been able to expel Washington from Dorchester Heights and squash the American Revolution right then and there. But all of these other miracles came about because the Americans were not fighting on their own. They were worthy of heavenly help. They were willing to step forward in faith, to take a step into the darkness, not knowing beforehand exactly how things were going to result. And because of that faith and because of that righteousness, God stepped in and made up the difference and gave the Americans a victory that they should have never, by all logical accounts, had. And this is a parable for us. This is a parable of atonement and grace. We do our best, and it is never going to be enough. But if we are righteous and if we have faith and rely on God to help, He can make miracles happen in our lives. Now, that's also a parable for each of our individual missions here on earth. Each of us have been given special tasks that God would have us do, 
And to our limited understanding, they will, in many instances and at different phases of those missions, seem impossible and seem crazy. He will ask us to do things that are seemingly impossible, and he will require leaps of faith that seem absolutely insane, but he will more than make up the difference. We can and will see miracles if we live righteously and faithfully follow his promptings, no matter how crazy they seem. How glad I am, and I'm sure those early patriots were, and I know that George Washington was, glad that we do not have to face these challenges alone. Now, that's going to do it for today's podcast. Um, These stories are so important for us and for our children and for our neighbors to hear. We have lost sight of where we came from and who helped us gain this freedom. Please help me spread these messages of freedom and of faith to as many people as possible by liking and rating the podcast. Come find me on YouTube. Subscribe to the Abide in Liberty YouTube channel. Like this. Share it. Help me remind our fellow citizens just how blessed we are to be Americans and just how much we truly are one nation under God. I hope to see you next week for part three in this series of The Miracles of the American Revolution. Thank you for listening to Abide in Liberty. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and share this with friends and family. In the meantime, keep up with the show online at abideinliberty.com. Also, if you'd like to help our K-12 bless and educate more families, contact us by visiting libertyyouthacademy.org. Until next time, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, and be strong.